Welcome in. It's Friday. You know what happened last week? I wore my Penn State jersey, and all and they went and played Auburn at Auburn, and they beat them forty-one to twelve. So from this point forward, I'm going to be wearing the jersey with the color of either home or away for Penn State because obviously that's the reason they won. Coming in, everybody. Welcome, Community Forum Friday, September twenty-third, eleven o three a.m. Very special guest today. He's been on the channel multiple times, but he's going to join us in a community forum style uh, as, as every other uh, Friday that we do here. So come on in, everybody. Make yourselves at home. Make sure you can hear me okay in the comments section. Let us know where you're from. Drop your location. And let's welcome in our uh, community forum guests. We have Borghan, a.k.a. Richard. We got Hans. We got Kuba. And our very special guest, our very special guest, the one and only, Emma Peppers. How you doing, my friend? Good to see you. Doing well, thanks. Good to see you too. Yeah, man. Uh, Cool. Yeah, Emmett's been a a guest of the channel multiple times. Uh, It's always uh, a joy to have him on. And uh, we also had uh, Matt, who uh, Matt and uh, Emmett both run a uh, a fund together called uh, Good Soil Investment, Good Soil uh, Investing Management. Sorry, I want to make sure I get. Yeah, no, it's Good Soil Investment Management. That's the name of the the management company. The fund is actually called Accelerated Opportunities Fund LP. So, you know, it's a it's not a traditional hedge fund where you're like long short. We're we're mostly long. And, uh, you know, it's it's trying to accelerate the uh, opportunities we see. And it's been a rough, a tough year, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so one of the topics that we'll kick off with here, and obviously on, in everyone's mind ever since we had the, the Fed meeting on Wednesday, um, the Fed came out and did another uh, 75 basis point rate hike uh, on the on the on the interest rate, I guess let's put the, the simplest way to put it. What uh, what are what's your take, Emmett? We'll start there and kind of hear your thoughts, and then we'll allow this sort of conversation to flow from there. So, um, where's your head at with this latest move from the Fed? Yeah, I listened to um, Powell uh, speak after uh, the decision and the statement, and you know, I feel like Powell is is try, you know mostly a straight shooter by nature I, you know my read on him is he he just wants to tell it like it is um, but he wants to be very professional um and i feel like um it's hard you know it makes it almost um he doesn't want to let people read between lines but i feel like if you can read between lines then um you know maybe it's easier with powell because he's really just straight shooter but he sticks to the script for the most part um, so there's like Q and A and stuff, and you know you can just listening to him speak. I feel like there's been a you know I guess it started with Jackson Hole, uh, but now it, it just seems um, more clear that they're just so focused on crushing inflation or inflation expectations that you know they raise their estimated unemployment rate acceptance or tolerance even you know, and they're like preparing themselves to just like batten down the hatches and keep raising rates until they see really significant uh, changes to inflation on data points that are very um, arguably obsolete in some ways with the equity owners rent making up, you know, 40% of the CPI and that's delayed like 12 to 18 months versus what was really going, you know, so there's, there's interesting um, things about it, but uh, I, I am worried that, uh, they are really determined to raise rates to four to five percent, and uh, 
we may look back, um, you know, in a couple of years and be like, and, and it might be like widely accepted as like, you know, the last five or 10 years being like the great interest rate bubble of like no interest rates for five or 10 years. And it's like widely accepted in a couple of years from now that like you have to have interest rates of like 4% or 5%. Otherwise, crazy things happen like cryptocurrency, SPAC mania, you know, all these crazy things, startups like all over the place. You're everyone and their cousin is setting up a startup because money is practically free with zero interest rates. And so I feel like there could be a narrative being the stage set for right now where we're kind of entering an interest rate environment that's going to be very long term you know, uh, 4% plus, and it's not a temporary, uh, you know, previously, I was thinking maybe it's just temporary until they see the CPI and the, you know, producer price index start coming down, they'll, they'll stop raising rates and get ready to pivot to come back down a little bit. But now I'm feeling more convinced that it's just going to be longer term, four to five, maybe even 6% interest rates. And, you know, the people, the old guard, you know, the, the older folks that are like, you know, that remember interest rates being 10% plus and so forth. They're like, all right, now we're getting back to normalcy. And they're like the decision makers here. And they're just going to keep it that way. And, and uh, I'm sorry, you know, that narrative, I'm not certain of it, but I feel like I'm like 50, 50 on that playing out like that. You know, it just seems like a very realistic uh, scenario and we'll never know what the other narrative could be if they reduced rates back, if, you know, if they brought it back down to 2% in the next couple of years or 1% or whatever, you know, We'll never know how much faster the economy could have accelerated or grown if they didn't, you know, uh, raise rates perpetually from here, you know. So that that's kind of what I'm playing with and juggling in my head, those two different possibilities. They both seem almost equally, you know, probable in my mind. I don't know. What do you guys think? Or The thought that comes to mind, and I'll uh, please the panel, feel free to sort of give your two cents here, but I... So this is the first time, and, and I'll speak from like a, somebody who's not an expert in finance, who's not an expert in, in this kind of stuff, but I, I've taken a lot of intrigue in it because, you know, over my investing journey, I, I find that these things very much influence <laughs> the holdings that I have. So if I'm, you know, if my liquid net worth is predominantly in Tesla, then what the Fed says I've learned really impacts what happens here, right? So it's a really interesting uh, learning journey for me. Um, what sticks what sticks out in my head is that uh, the last the last time they raised the raised uh, seventy five basis points, the language that was given by Powell was much more like, hey, we're nearing the wait and see. We're nearing the wait and see approach. And you know we, we might, you know we're going to take it quarter by quarter. And, you know, there could be a pathway for us to potentially see inflation coming down to a point where we're going to have to, like, take a different approach to how we're raising rates. And then and then literally a few weeks later with Jackson Hole, it like it was a complete 180 in a very short time frame. So in my head, I'm like, what has happened in that time frame for s such different language to arrive? And how come such few people have so much impact on everything. <laughs> so like that's that's been my learning sort of discovery right now and I'm and I'm really like trying to grapple with the fact that there are these these uh sort of uh variables at play in the economy and and for people that hold stock or whatever where where very few people could very much make decisions that could inflict some pain on on those that are holding those shares but I 
I'm just uncertain on on where we're going with the Fed. Like, and and the reason why I even say that is because if they're if they're able to make such a quick about face about their language about hey we might want to take it this quarter to quarter approach, and then all of a sudden it's like no we got to squash this thing super super hard. I'm like okay, what what happened? <laughs> what happened? Can yeah. you be straight with me for a second? I might be overreacting, but that's what comes to yeah. mind to me. I don't know if anybody has any thoughts. Well, one thing I'll say real quick is I you know that that point you bring about bring up about like what has changed between the last 75 basis points like you know they're gonna wait and see versus the jackson hole meeting things clearly changed the tone and now we're like this much more hawkish uh place with powell and um one reason why i'm only like 50 percent you know i'm on the fence 50 50 is because uh i think inflation expectations is maybe the elephant in the room um, that Powell is really fighting. Inflation itself is one thing, but inflation Mm -hmm. expectations is sort of, I think, a main driver of actual inflation. Like do businesses or individuals, you know, if you're setting up, if you're doing a running a business, are you setting your contracts in the future, expecting inflation to keep rising? And if so, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, then inflation does keep rising. Um, And so if the Fed is not hawkish enough right now, then it allows for businesses or whatnot to continue thinking that inflation could continue. But if the Fed and the other, you know, is really hardcore right now and hawkish and like makes a big dent in the market and the economy, then businesses are like, oh, the Fed's got inflation. We're going to set our prices in the future because we don't think inflation, you know, so inflation expectations to a large degree drives inflation. So maybe the argument is he's trying to be extra hawkish right now just to get inflation expectations under control. And then, and then when everything is kind of clearly under control in six months or whatever time frame, they can pivot to be a little more dovish again. That's that's the hope. That's the optimistic me kind of thinking that plays out okay. that way. So it's more like trying to. Um, it's like a human psychology game almost, right? It's like that. So that's yeah. crazy to me. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. feels yeah. insane. Because if everyone expects him to like take rates back down in the beginning of June, January, in the beginning of 2023, then I think a lot of the businesses that are planning their pricing or supplier agreements and whatnot, they kind of account for that. And they're like, well, interest rates are not going to be up very long. And, you know, inflation is not really subsiding. We're going to price it here. You know, so there is a lot of psychology. I think you're, you're right in, in this in the decision, potentially. It's so fascinating. Uh any any thoughts from the panel? Like so many things are coming to my head, but I want to make sure I give space to everybody else. Uh, Hans, uh, Richard, Richard, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so I was thinking, I'm kind of the Jerome Powell here, close in age, and I remember in 1991 I bought my first house. I got an adjustable mortgage, so it was a discounted teaser rate. It was 7.99 was the entry, the cheap discount rate. The prime was over well over 10. Um, but you only have to go back 10 years before that. That's Jimmy Carter. So that means like, you know, prime is close to 20. But it took 10 years for it to drop half, you know, in essence. That's a long time. Um, I don't think we're going to ever get rates that like that. But but you have to keep that in mind. And Emmett, I agree with Emmett in terms of the part. It definitely is part of my psyche. So I do remember those times. And when interest rates were at a, you know, one, 2%, it did seem incredibly cheap to me. So I think if you're over a certain age, it is kind of baked in um, just by nature. The, the factor I think that troubles me the most is housing because it's a 
to me, that is a real difficult issue. One, because as interest rates go up, construction is going to go down and there's already a, you know, there's a shortage of housing anyway. But as construction ceases because it becomes less profitable and because people can't borrow money, that gap is going to widen and the demand on rental housing is only going to increase, which is going to force rental costs up. And that's part of core inflation. And, you know, whatever the imaginary rules that the Fed operates under, they seem to distinguish between core and non-core inflation, and purportedly they focus on the core part, but housing is a substantial portion of that core part. And if that continues to, to, go, to rise, that's going to be a really difficult feat. And finally, the other part is, you know, from where, and I don't know how this plays in, but from where they started this journey on trying to battle inflation, the world economy is in the shitter. You know, it's, it's, it's substantially worse, which I think makes the job even more difficult and more complex, but kind of puts a greater pressure on not raising interest rates. Because if you're going to go into a worldwide recession, then you don't want to suppress economic activity. And by continuing to raise interest rates, you kind of are going to do that. So it's uh, I just think it's a really complex and difficult issue. Yeah, and then the other factor to remember is also that the government has a lot of debt that they have to service. And so I don't know how much pressure the Fed is under to keep interest capped below a certain rate just to keep the government's interest payments reasonable. Um, so yeah, that was one of the questions also that came up in the chat, but that is one of the things that I also wonder about being in the psychology of the market is that maybe there is kind of an implicit assumption by a lot of market participants that, Hey, this can only go so far that we can never go even to 10% again, because it would crash the government's ability to even operate. Yeah. I think what's, also interesting for me is the fact that, you know, the Fed was in a, you know, they gave specific language not, not too long ago um, that, you know, it was the whole transitory thing, like the inflation was going to be transitory. And then, so for like a period of time, they didn't really do anything. Oh, we lost Cuba. I'm sure you'll be back. Uh, for a period of time, there wasn't any uh, indication that the Fed was going to step in and, and raise uh, rates like crazy. And then they started raising rates like crazy. So in my head, it's like, okay, so we were in an environment where the Fed made a decision that they didn't think that would have to make. And it came, um, <laughs> it came almost out of surprise to them. I wonder if the same dynamic is going to happen when they are uh, almost forced to stop raising rates if that inf uh, inflation number that people have been talking about, like your uh, uh, Kathy Woods, your Elon Musk's, like I wonder if Jerome Powell follows these CEOs' uh, Twitter accounts or whatever that's that it's giving them signals that says, hey, like the supply chain starting to ease up. Like we're seeing, you know, if Elon comes out and says, hey, if the Fed should reduce rates by 0.25%, he's seeing something in the supply chain that's telling him that, hey, inflation has come down tremendously. Like we need to we need to resolve this. So I wonder if there's going to be that same dynamic that happened with the transitory language that he was giving where before we know it, Fed's going to be like, okay, you know what? We're going to stop raising rates because we're something has changed and all this noise that's been bubbling up in the supply chain now about how prices are come back to normal is going to influence their decision. But who knows? You know, it's just the, the guessing game is what's kind of like, 
a, a fascinating thing for me to learn because these decisions make such an impact to the economy, yet nobody knows what the hell is going to happen here in the next three to six months, you know? Yeah, it's, and <clears throat> I mean, none of us wa- wanted to be, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I, I didn't want to be some, ex- I'm not an expert by any means, but I don't want to like right. follow macro marks to the Fed every remark and you know, but when we're so invested in Tesla and you see Tesla and, and the entire market going up and down five or 10 percent a week because of, you know, a surprise speech at Jackson, Jackson Hole or a CPI number anticipation, you know, it just you you really have no you really need to follow that stuff because stocks are not moving, um, you know, independent of each other. They're all kind of moving up and down together, like the breadth of the market is just really inhaling and exhaling very widely recently um, because of the Fed and this macro market stuff. And so you, there's, you know, you have to really follow this stuff in these times. I I can't wait till we get back to like some stability where, you know, this, this stuff, you know, interest rates are stable. Everyone knows they're stable. Inflation's under control. And we can just kind of like focus on stocks earnings. And that that's the the dominant factor of your P and L of your brokerage account versus, you know, what words, you know, Powell is using or not using in his speech. Like he started using this word restrictive level a lot recently in this speech and restrictive to what? Like, you know, I guess they're at this low end of restrictive level. There's restrictive level. They, they want to restrict, I don't know, like high, I don't know what they're trying to restrict to be honest. Inflation, obviously, but it sounds like they're trying to restrict like easy money or something. Um, they don't want the economy to be too greased up, you know, because it, it helps inflation, you know, potentially perpetuate if it is. So, I just I'm looking forward to <laughs> the days where uh, you know the, the Fed is is in the background and not in the foreground of of our P and L. Yeah. Cool. But uh, so maybe this is a fool's game uh, watching and getting excited about it. I know Emma that you have a different set of circumstances that you actually need to get involved in that. I'm wondering if regular retail Tesla investors really should care that much because. It, it will pass at some point, right? And then things will be back to normal. And you know that Tesla itself is doing tremendously well, right? And even better that it's like maybe uh, pushed down a little bit. If you're in a phase where you can accumulate, you just build up at lower prices than they would have been, certainly. So maybe we're just putting that stress on ourselves unnecessarily. I agree, Kuba, 100%. Yeah, I mean, if you're a long-term Tesla stockholder, this is just a lot of noise that you have to deal with, obviously. Um, and in the end, Tesla stock will will be worth what it is. The path to get from here to there is, you know, going to be widely dependent on what the Fed's doing. But if you're holding to there, to you know, where it gets really high, you know, like five or ten years time, Tesla's going to be magnanimously bigger than what it is now, the business, the profits, and of course the stock, you know, so, um, you know, but in the next one or two years, it's psychologically painful. So it is sort of like a fool's errand in some, you know, to fo- follow the the daily moves of what the Fed's doing and such. I, you know, I agree, Kuba. So it's, it's good to keep an uh, if you're a long-term Tesla holder, that's uh, keep your eye on the prize of the business and it's stronger than ever. And yeah. Unless you're playing with margin, which I strongly discourage from my own experience. <laughs> yes, margin is very, very stressful for sure. And options, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to kind of, you know, being an optimistic lawyer, I was going to kind of give you the opposite 
take on that. And I've th I've thought about this since the pandemic. I was just thinking the sequence, the relative sequence of events. So there was a war, there was a worldwide pandemic, and then like 10 years later, there was a depression. So I don't know if that was just coincidence or there was some, uh, you know, more of a systematic method for how it ended up like that. But, you know, we presume like this dump in the market and the economy is going to be, you know, typical, maybe a year to two years, and then we're out of it and we're back to normal and everything's great. But, you know, this might be an exceptional period in the in our history because of the sequence of events. And maybe instead of two years, it's five or 10. And maybe, you know, a long-term horizon is fine, but, you know, maybe it's a longer-term horizon and we have to be much more patient than we, at today's for today's purposes, that we would anticipate. And, you know, I don't know, I, I don't know. because But again, that occurred to me, like when the pandemic started, that first thing that occurred to me, was that just happened or was there some rhyme or reason? The other thing I, I wanted to address that you kind of mentioned before was about Powell. And I think he, I think he makes one misstatement. So his prime directive, which sounds like a Star Trek uh, reference, his prime directive um, is, the, is inflation. So I think he's more likely to crush inflation and go over the top past what he should do just to make sure. So it doesn't surprise me if he mucks it up by going too far. The part that I don't like, and I think he's a little bit disingenuous about, is about employment. And he talks about, you know, he wants employment basically to cool off. But I don't really think that's what he wants. I think what he wants, he wants the participation rate to rise. He wants many more people to have to come back into the employment market to keep wages flat so that inflation will be flat. And that's a lot different than just hoping unemployment rises. That means you have to create an environment where people have to go back to work. And that's, and he's never said that. And I think if he would have said that, people would not be very uh, welcoming of that kind of strategy. Can I share something real quick that, so along those lines, uh, I found this very fascinating yesterday, um, where even Elizabeth Warren, so on the side of sort of labor, so she made this comment where the Federal Reserve's Chair Powell just announced another extreme interest rate hike while forecasting higher unemployment. I mean, warning that Chair Powell's fed would throw millions of Americans out of work, and I fear he's already on the path of doing so. So what's really interesting about that tweet, you know, I'm, I am no fan of politicians. But what's very interesting about this tweet from Elizabeth Warren is that now you have a chorus of voices that are, are uh, arising from sort of call it the people that are invested in the markets or are part of businesses that are saying, hey, this sort of uh, high inf uh, a high interest rate, sort of what you're doing is really causing us to have a very unstable market that's going to really hurt demand and, and potentially other things. And then we also have somebody who's representing the people coming out and saying, hey, like you're, you're, this action is going to start killing jobs. It's going to start killing jobs. We're going to run into an issue. So now there's like multiple voices coming at it from, from a different like from, from two different spectrums and it's sort of, and, and I wonder if that sort of echoes what Richard sort of uh, was talking about, about how this is going to, you know, the, the, the labor uh, force is going to get impacted by these decisions. But I wanted to throw that out there because I find that as a very interesting sort of uh, dynamic that's arising. Um, 
not, not sure if anybody, and I didn't want to like sort of derail the conversation, but I just found that tweet to be like sort of analogous. As soon as you're talking about what you were saying, Richard, I, I thought of that tweet that came out, but I'm not sure if anybody has any thoughts. Yeah. I mean, one of the, I think I echo what Richard was saying and that this is something I've been thinking about a lot. It's, you know, have we just moved into a different phase that we were in pretty amazing period of stability just worldwide and that created a lot of stability in markets and um then you know you kind of get these like second and third order effects or like risks kind of building up in the system over time and over a long period of stability they just build up more and more just kind of like we saw with tesla stock except the inverse where for a long time it just traded sideways and that momentum and pressure was just building, 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 building. And then in 2019, 2020, 2021, we saw the stock just shoot up. Well, I think sometimes there are like risks to our global macro environment that do the same thing. And that's kind of what we're seeing with Ukraine and the pandemic. Um, and then we'll see what happens with China and Taiwan and that there, you know, there may be a lot more of those things, shoes that are waiting to drop. And we'll just have to see. But when I think about all that, I do continually come back to just feeling very comfortable with, okay, if I'm going to have asset tied up somewhere that I'm hoping will help me ride out whatever instability comes, I can't think of a better place to put it than Tesla because there's no one else who moves faster, can solve problems better, and can thrive more in an instable environment than Tesla can. And so it doesn't matter, you know, I, I think it's better than gold. It's better than digital gold. It's better than, um, any sort of inflation hedge that you can think of when you have your, you own a piece of a company that is growing on an exponential rate consistently with unparalleled execution and agility. Yeah. I think, uh, the one the one thing that I always go back to with Tesla and this sort of environment is that if we're really going to be in a place where cash is going to become more and more expensive, you should probably want to be in a company that's going to be generating a lot of that <laughs> and doesn't have any debt, right? I think that's yeah. that's the most fascinating thing about the company. Go ahead, Emmett. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, I was just agreeing with you guys both. Yeah, I mean, Tesla is... Uh, starting to generate tons of cash. Uh, it's a different place than it's ever been in. Um, you know, eventually they'll buy back their own shares with their cash. And um, so Tesla as, you know, a place to hold wealth, you know, versus gold or cash or anything else to me seems the most attractive place. Um, you know, even if the stock price uh, trades somewhat sideways for a while, it's just kind of, you know, um, I think, you know, the, the fundamentals of Tesla in the end will will win out, uh, of course. And so at some point, I think Tesla will generate cash, you know, uh, a, you know, tremendous amounts of cash that it won't know what to do with. It's going to be buying back tons of shares, maybe issuing a huge dividends. I mean, you look at the maturity of how Apple kind of grew to where it is now that's sort of a microcosm of what I think Tesla is going to be going through. So Tesla is going to be generating so much more cash than even Apple does now and have to do so much more with it in terms of like 
putting it back, you know, giving it back to the investors or buying back shares because it won't be able to deploy all that cash like in any kind of efficient way. So that's, you know, five to 10 years out. And that's worst case in my mind, you know, but in the next two to five years, you know, if FSD doesn't really take off or the bot doesn't really make meaningful progress the next two to five years, which I don't expect the bot to necessarily do, then I feel like it's just the manufacturing of the cars and, even though that's going to continue to ramp up and justify the current stock valuation in a declining market, it could just trade sideways for a while before it kind of really ramps up later in the decade in my mind. But, you know, good things come to those who wait, you know? So, uh, you know, I think if you're a long-term Tesla, you know, holder, you study the company well, and it's great that we have this type of like camaraderie these days of these like chats like this, it's almost like a support group for each other (laughs) in trying times and, all the YouTube channels and spaces about, you know, I think it's all important to tune into all of that and keep the eye on the prize. Like the day-to-day movements is not what it's about. It's about the longer term picture, you know, and if you're using margin or options, then obviously you're focusing more on the day-to-day movements. Um, You know, you're forced to in a way, Um, but that's a dangerous game. Anyone using margin or options obviously should know that going into it. Yeah. I think about the quote a lot of times that says that volatility is the price of outperformance. And I can't remember. I think it's a Peter Lynch quote. Um, I could be mistaken on that. But that's one of the things that I think about in these types of times when you know that, you know, with Tesla's beta, they are going to on the day to day, they're going to have swings that typically are wider swings than if you were in the NASDAQ or the S&P 500. But as far as overall safety you know the long term has shown that tesla's where you should be so did you have something you wanted to say kuba yeah uh, yeah i wanted to uh, because a question came to my head Emmett, when you said that uh, you likened uh, tesla to apple in terms of generating cash and not knowing what to do with it so apple has been sometimes criticized for holding on to loads of cash and actually not doing much with it do you think, this question to all of you guys, do you think that this is Elon's style or if they just get a lot of cash, he would be hell-bent on, on finding some useful uh, stuff for this cash to do uh, rather than just keep it and accumulate it in the balance sheet? What do you guys think? You want to go first, Emmett? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think, uh, you know, Elon's referenced like the term war chest a couple of times, you know, when he raised capital, I remember at the end of 2020, I think it was or whatever. And they're raised, you know, it's opportunistic to raise, you know, when the stock was going up, they're, they're just trying to accumulate. So I think in his mind, he must have some like determined amount of cash that he wants to keep on hand on the balance sheet, you know, and it may be it's proportional to the business to some degree. But I think in his mind, he's got some kind of like, formula or a number or in proportion to the business, you know, for safety reasons, 